80% of that cost is actually due to the refueling and storage. So about 20% is the production. So if we're going to drive down that Greek premium and get the diesel parry and decarbonize long haul trucking in the US and globally, we have to bring down this 80% of the cost, which is refueling and storage. Burn is a startup developing hydrogen refueling and storage solutions for the heavy duty sector. Their technology platform doubles the operating range of vehicles while keeping fuel costs low. This podcast was recorded in the beginning of 2023, and since then, Burn has made a lot of progress. They successfully carried out a demo in a fuel cell vehicle, obtained letters of intent for over 160 trucks, and Verd is now working with some of the leading truck OEMs. Last but not least, Verd accelerated its development for the aviation sector and has started a collaboration to develop refueling equipment. Dear listeners, welcome to this week's episode of the Hydrogen Innovators, podcast series produced by the Samford Hydrogen Initiative, spotlighting bold innovators in hydrogen all the way from academia to industry. If you like our podcast, please follow the Samford Hydrogen Initiative on LinkedIn and subscribe to Hydrogen Innovators on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. I'm Karen Bert, recent Stanford MBA graduate, entrepreneur and innovation strategist at the Initiative. And I'm thrilled to be your host for this week's podcast. Today, we have the privilege to welcome David Jaramillo. David is co-founder and CTO at one of the base most famous hydrogen storage startups, Vern. After David's bachelor in chemistry, he successfully completed his PhD in inorganic and materials chemistry at Berkeley. David, thank you so much for being here with us today. Yeah, thanks a lot, Karen. I'm really excited about the, the Iron Initiative. Let's kick it off. I was listening to a David Crane earlier today, the director of clean energy uh, at, at the DOE. And he mentioned, hey, if you think about the 19th century was a century of coal, 20th century was a century of gas and oil. The 21st century is a century of hydrogen, which I thought was a pretty cool sign to show how the hydrogen industry is really, really taking off. Um, now, Verd is working on one of the big challenges that remains in the hydrogen industry, and that is how do we transport and store it? Would you tell us a bit more about Verd and how Verd is tackling the hydrogen storage problem? Yeah, absolutely. So Verd is focused on heavy-duty transport and accelerating the transition to a hydrogen-powered industry. So one of the key limiting factors there is how you store the hydrogen, as you pointed out, and their current... There's many different current solutions that exist, but all of them have major drawbacks. Uh, you can summarize all that by saying that the density is still not sufficient relative, for, relative to diesel performance to make the transition from the end customer as smooth and as fast as possible. So what Vert is doing kind of succinctly is we're uh, bringing to market a new technology known as crop compressed hydrogen, which represents the well, let's say thermodynamic sweet spot of high density, low cost. And we can get maybe more into the details after this overview. Um, so we're bringing this new technology on the storage side and refueling and really first targeting trucking. So long haul trucking, which is responsible for about 4% of the global CO2 gas emissions. So we're growing at this new technology. We're prototype stage right now. And ultimately the vision is starting in 2026 timeframe, start to have commercial trucks running on pop and press hydrogen uh, in the U.S. and globally. 
Great, cool. I uh, would love to hear more about that. So if we start with the storage uh, issue, so you can store hydrogen in the form of a gas, but that's expensive. And then the other option is liquid. Where does cryogenic storage sit in between all of that? Yeah, I think the helpful way to think about it too, and as you pointed out in the beginning of the podcast, is that there's so many different use cases for hydrogen. There's going to be different needs for different kinds of hydrogen storage, and I think we will cover some later on, uh, many different kinds. Well, let's focus the conversation mainly then on transport. So how do we do the transport? And then we really focus on sort of the, the customer needs, fleet operators. We can then kind of highlight some of the main pain points. And so we can kind of summarize following. So we have compressed gas. So that's what you see today on the Toyota Mirai, the Hyundai uh, Nexo, Honda Clarity. So all those are going to have 700 bar storage vessels. In order to get enough hydrogen density, you got to, or energy density from the hydrogen, you have to densify it so much, you're going to seminar times the pressure of the atmosphere. It's incredibly high pressures. And even then, the density is still not sufficient to meet a lot of the needs of fleet operators. Um, and so a lot of fleet operators, truck OEMs, they see the 700 bar compressed technology as a stepping stone. It's sort of what's commercially available. Let's try it. There's a lot of de-risking that has to happen. But they know that that's not going to meet the end solution. It's not dense enough. So the other consideration, the other kind of standard consideration is the liquids, liquid hydrogen. So we know how to compress hydrogen. We've done this for many decades. We also know how to liquefy hydrogen. We've done this for many decades. So let's consider that as another option. And so the issue with liquid, there's a few. One of those is the much higher cost. So sure, you'll have liquid hydrogen. Um, but to begin with, put it into context, is the amount of liquid hydrogen that exists today is minimal. It's a very small percentage of all. It's dominated in the U.S. It was mostly dominated for air, for aerospace applications, not so specialty manufacturing. It's so very small. It's getting a lot of headlines, and it will continue to grow. Um, but it's not a very deployable technology. For a new liquefaction plant of about 30 tons per day, you need $250 million and takes four to five years plus. Not very deployable. Um, so what is the cost and how the refilling for structure gets rolled out is a big issue for liquid. The second main issue is around the storage vessel themselves. Your storing is at 20 Kelvin. So thermal transfer is a huge issue. It's also a liquid. So if you get too much heat in, you're going to do a phase transition. And that expansion uh, needs to be uh, immediately resolved either by venting is normally what's done. So you have a lot of complex thermal management, a lot of, comp a lot of complex components required for the storage. So that's so really something the stage there is compressed. Hydrogen is readily available, not enough density. Liquid may have, can meet the density requirements, but brings a lot of other challenges. So that's sort of the kind of the state of the art problems and kind of where we find ourselves trying to address all those issues. Why has nobody else worked on cryogenic hydrogen before? And if so, where or how has it been uh, worked on? Yeah. So then, so for liquid, that's low pressure. Uh, pyogenic. So let's think about six bar, 20 Kelvin, put some context. Um, so what we're doing is prop compressed. And you can think of that as we're going to make it, make the hydrogen cold, really increasing the densities, but without going all the way to 20 Kelvin, you can look at the phase diagram and you get this massive uptick if you pull just to about 70 or 60 Kelvin. Um, and then we're also going to pressurize. So we pressurize, but we don't go to crazy high pressures like 700 bar. We can stay at 300 bar, 400 bar, which makes actually a, a very big difference from cost perspective. So it's really the sweet spot and so is prop and crest. 
Um, it's been done for two decades. So it was really pioneered by one of the, by DOE funded work. So led by Lawrence Livermore National Lab and Salvador Rosetas. Um, he led some of this early work back then. And in the early, our, yeah, maybe 2000, 2008, 2010 timeframe, when there's big sort of an early push for hydrogen, then there's been explored flight duty vehicles. BMW um, work was Livermore. They had a create agreement. They were looking into this. Uh, I would say that it it stopped. Um, you can think of why it stopped as a kind of a false fail. It wasn't necessarily inherent to the technology. It was more, I think, a market-driven decision. And the amount of complexity and de-risking required did reap the benefits as there was not really a big market for light-duty hydrogen vehicles in 2010. Fascinating. So the technology has been around for a while, but only now it has become super relevant specifically for hydrogen in road transportation. Yeah. And so I think that with, uh, with heavy duty trucks, and when you think about the use case and the, and the problem that they're facing, then crop compression, when you revisit sort of everything that's been done crop compression, uh, it really is, uh, has a strong value proposition for that. So this is on the storage technology side. You mentioned you're also working on the fueling technology. Can you elaborate more of it? Yeah, and so what we also want to do is, one is the, is the storage, so we can effectively, these crop pressure vessels, we can double the amount of energy stored relative to what's currently available. So effectively doubling the range, so uh, game changer for fleet operators. Um, but that's useless if they can't refuel where they normally want to refuel. So the other really great attribute of crop compressed hydrogen is that you can fill with either a liquid hydrogen supply or a gaseous supply using the same kind of tank. So this supply chain optionality is a huge deal, especially in the uh, current stage of there's a lot of optionality required, there's unknown infrastructure rollout. And so if there's liquid and Vern is working with some commercially established technologies as well, a few things that have to be demonstrated to fill with what's known as a liquid hydrogen cryopump. So if you have liquid, great, we just run a cryopump and you can very efficiently fill a crop impression vessel. If it's gaseous, maybe it's on-site being produced or it's gaseous delivery, um, rather than having to liquefy it and then use a liquid hydrogen cryopump, Vern is developing a crop compressor, which is just another process of kind of what I said earlier of you're going to compress and cool, get it to the thermodynamic sweet spot, and then fill. So that way, whether it's gaseous or liquid, um, you will be able to fill the crop compression vessel. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Same. So you're focused on trucks today. I think I recently read Hyundai is planning to have 30 class eight, so big trucks on the roads in California and at the second half of this year. So definitely market that is developing and growing as we speak. At the same time, obviously hydrogen has a lot of other use cases as well. Or does Vern envision to look at other use cases beyond uh, road transport? And if so, where, where are you looking at? So for the trucking, we're definitely focused on that for through the through most of this deck is our main focus. And uh, we'll see sort of hundreds to thousands of trucks starting in, in 2026 for hydrogen trucks in the U.S. and ramping up to 20 to 30,000 by 2030. And so we believe that it, once we execute and de-risk the technology, a major component of that will be crop and press. Taking a step back and the other kind of where we're hearing there could be a lot of interest and where we're also exploring are industries in which fast refueling is needed industries in which downtime needs to be minimized 
and which the power demands on board are great. So with those three things are all required, you absolutely need sort of the highest density, really fast refueling. So you're not going to do batteries. And one of those is, of course, long on trucks, but the other big one is mining. And so within mining, there's all different kinds of trucks and use cases, but mining call it trucks. Trucks that can weigh 200 to 400 tons um, are going to be operating. They're very expensive. So for the, for the business model to work for the users in that case, there's very little downtime. So you have max signs uptime, quick repealing. So mining is one where mining entities are exploring different hiring solutions for those properties. And that's one that if we focus on trucking, get trucking right based on the systems, then the amount of hydrogen required on a mining is two or three X what we're doing for trucks. So then it'd be a natural stepping stone for us then to go into mining. Interesting. And then maybe with that, there's also other specialized vehicles, for example, in the building or construction industry that could could be use case. Yeah, exactly. So construction also has some parallels with, with mining. Yeah. Um, and so, yeah. And I think all those would be really important industries. And if we get trucking right, then we can go into these adjacent industries. Great. Uh, fascinating. Now, I'm curious to hear um, your thoughts on what do you think are areas in the hydrogen industry that are hampering the industry and that not enough people are, are working on uh, yet? Verna's tackling a huge, huge challenge in there, but there's a lot of challenges. Uh, what would be the, the number one thing you would point out there? Yeah, I think one thing I would really point out is the more just calibrating perspective. So I think it's it's great to have all this emphasis on the hydrogen shot, all this emphasis on hydro production. We need all that. Um, but just consider that for hydrogen transport, consider that the cost of hydrogen at the pump today is about 15 kilograms, or sorry, $15 per kilogram. Um, 80% of that cost is not it is actually due to the refueling and storage. So about 20% is the production. So if we're going to drive down that Greek premium and get the diesel parry and decarbonize long haul trucking in the U.S. and globally, we have to bring down this 80% of the cost, which is refueling and storage. So I would say that we do need production. Let's do more of it. But we also need more focus, um, more kind of focus from different entities, from the government, from national labs, from startups, Focus on storage or refueling. That's eight of the costs. The second is in order for this to uh, to be rolled out, we also need to think about the specialty component vendors. So the, the, the different nozzles, the different sort of sensors. It requires a very complex ecosystem. So it's not a single big sort of company that to do it all. And so those are the kind of the I mean, the two main things I would cons- that I think should be more emphasized and more discussed and be more in front front of mind. Super interesting. Thank you for sharing that. Titan. Such a good point that we shouldn't only fo- focus on the levelized cost of hydrogen production, but also think about, okay, what's the cost in terms of dollars a kilogram when we're actually using it yeah. um, and then and work on that to get that cost down. Yeah. Great. Cool. I'm going to ask you a couple of rapid firing questions uh, and love to get your quick thoughts on some of these. First one is hydrogen passenger vehicles, hype or hope? Yeah, I think... Um and so I'll just say a few things on that one where you have some in, in California, so maybe 4,000 4, of those, so that's a really tiny market. But generally, I don't think that it makes too much sense. However, it depends on many conditions, I think. So in South Korea, there's in total globally, there's maybe 60,000 fuel cell vehicles. South Korea alone has about 
25,000 light duty vehicles. Uh, and it's, a, I think it's 6x from last year or from 2022 relative to 2021. So they clearly see based on how they're going to do their end infrastructure and hydrogen roadmap that light duty vehicles can play a big part. You also have big OEMs there that are moving, we're really moving it forward. So I think it might not be a, uh, a big industry in the United States, for example, for light duty vehicles, but it could be a massive industry in other countries such as South Korea. Great. Okay, second one. So we talked about uh, storing hydrogen in its pure form, right? Um, in different ways. All the options are derivatives of hydrogen or adding hydrogen to other molecules. Two newer ones out there that a lot of people are talking about are uh, liquid hyd organic hydrogen carriers and metal organic frameworks. Love to hear your thoughts on these. Yeah, so I uh, did my PhD on organic frameworks, focusing on hydrogen storage. All right. So the, I think that they have a lot of promise. So the idea there is the main upside is you can do uh, really high-density storage without going to very high pressures. I think the downside is the thermal management is very complicated, and you'll likely have cost issues and durability issues. There's some parallels there with, uh, with liquid organic hydrogen carriers, so those in terms of their applications, I think you could have some niche applications. There's probably scenarios where for safety reasons, one stay low pressure, radio high density. One of those could be underground mining where you don't want high pressure physical methods like 700 bar, but instead maybe you have a material absorbent at 50 bar um, or in data centers in the city, for example, for different reasons. Same thing for liquid organic hydrogen carriers. Those are much easier to handle. It's a liquid. So I think there's a lot of upside in use, uh, for these use cases where pressure is a big issue. The downside is just going to be more expensive and limited durability. Well, David, thank you so much for this great uh, quick overview on hydrogen storage and what Vern is doing. I really hope this sparks our listeners' interest to go check out Vern and learn more about, about them and, and the space in general. Now, I'd love to move over to a couple of more personal leadership questions. First one is, so many of our listeners are inspired by your career path and then the progress you and the team at Vern have been making over the last years. At the same time, can imagine the entrepreneurial roller coaster isn't always that gloomy. One, what has been the moment you've been closest to giving up with Vern and what has kept you going? Yeah, so I don't think I have uh, the answer you're looking for. I think I'm uh, maybe default optimistic. So right, there's times where it's incredibly stressful, you have many different fires to put out. Um, but I think what keeps me going is that I can truly say there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. And I think I've, I've been blessed with opportunities I've been given from undergrad to grad school, fellowships. Um, even I get in Sanford with the Tomcat, kind of got started all through grants, fellowships. So there's nothing I'd rather be doing. And most days I wake up thinking there's nothing I'd rather do. So I think that uh, puts into context for the stressful things and the fact that I, I, got, I got to choose to do this. So I, um, there's times that are stressful, but I've never had a, any doubt in doing this. Yeah, that's so cool. You can imagine having that as the North Star helps uh, to get to, to the highs and lows. Yeah. What was the biggest high with the Vern team over the last years? Yeah, I think probably it's going to be... Um, the for when the founders when sort of myself um ted mackman Bavroy kind of started this from during covid so the three of us for a while i think the biggest high is when the three of us are doing our own thing and we check on the team and we realize like we've had 
we've been lucky and have been able to assemble the right sort of engineers, the right culture, what they're doing there. They don't even need us or guidance in many cases. So it's not a specific, there's definitely specific instances of that, that come up. Um, a few of when we finally started to test our first prototype at a national lab, uh, probably this week when we're building one of our first big systems, I'm um, really finalizing in. So all these things, uh, yeah, so I think it's sad. It's kind of more the team and, and there's moments that we can, that is really heightened by a progress that's being made by the team. And then we realize that, that, uh, burn success is really on, on that team. That's so cool. That's beautiful. And the fact that the friend team is striving far beyond the, the, the co-founder team. Yeah. And really cool. Um, getting to the last question of the podcast already. And this is a question we like to ask all of our guests. Um, I have the strong belief that we all stand on the shoulders of the giants who came before us and using Isaac Newton's words. It's standing on their shoulders that makes us look uh, further. In that context, we'd love to hear who inspires it most and, and why. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. Um, so I think it's it's my dad. And I think the, the reasons for that, it was, um, and it sort of wasn't always... Th- I guess the, the reasons for it wasn't always evident to me, but over time it's become more and more evident. And I think it's because of um, he embodies this long-term thinking and staying optimistic and what I forbid challenges. Um, so in particular, my dad was, uh, he was a judge in, in Columbia, and then he came to the U.S. just so about we have a better chance at uh, an education, so I could have a better chance at proper education. And so he went from being a judge to just being a caretaker, kind of mowing the lawn. And, and he did that for, um, since I was eight years old. And I think just having that commitment, that perseverance is, uh, yeah, really inspiring. And so to me, there's very little to complain about and, and always focus on kind of long term and solving big problems. Wow. That is really inspiring and a beautiful way to, uh, to end the podcast. David, it's been such a privilege to learn from you and get to know you better. Thank you for your time today. And more importantly, the hard work you and the team are doing to tackle the biggest challenge of our generation, a sustainability challenge. We're rooting for you and the full team, and uh, we cannot wait to continue to follow along. Yeah, thanks a lot, Kerry. Thanks a lot for all the great questions. And I just want to say that we're all really thankful for uh, a lot of the early ecosystem uh, kind of individuals and entities that help. Uh, I think NSF, iCorp, sort of Stanford, Comcat, uh, one of particulars, of course, Breakthrough Energy uh, Fellows. And so I'll, I'd like to just end by saying that I'd recommend any entrepreneur in this space to definitely take advantage, if they're lucky to be in this ecosystem, take full advantage of what Stanford and Berkeley have to offer and Breakthrough Energy Fellows. And yeah, if you're to learn more about Burn, you can find us at burnings2.com. You can find us on LinkedIn. You can find me that way and feel free to reach out. Happy to connect with others thinking about hydrogen, startups, uh, or related topics. Fantastic. Thank you so much, David. Keep up the good work.